0: You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. katie lockwood a primary care pediatrician at the children's hospital of philadelphia and i'm here today with dr kate Yun, who's an attending physician at the chop refugee health program and policy lab and also practices in primary care in chop south philly thanks for joining me today dr Yun. hi i'm happy to join you we're going to be talking today about refugee health i'm going to start with some background so on average more than 50,000 refugees relocate to the united states annually and approximately 800 of these families come to the Philadelphia region. Refugees come from diverse regions of the world and bring with them health risks common to all refugee populations, as well as some that may be unique to their host country. As the primary care pediatricians that are often the first to care for the refugee population in the US, it is important that we understand what the unique needs of this community are and what resources are available to us in providing them the best care. To start with a definition, a refugee is defined as someone who, due to a fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, or political opinion, is outside the country of his nationality, and due to this fear is unwilling to avail himself to the protection of that country. Understanding this definition helps us appreciate how these patients differ from other immigrant populations we may take care of. To understand the refugee population in Philadelphia, Dr. Young, can you tell us where most of the refugees in Philadelphia have relocated from and what might have driven their resettlement?
1: So refugee resettlement to Philadelphia for the past five years has really reflected national resettlement trends. That means the three largest groups of refugees coming to the city, um, who've really comprised upwards of 60 to even 70 percent of resettlement, have been coming from three countries. Those are Iraq, Bhutan, which is a small kingdom in the Himalayas near uh, Nepal, mm-hmm. and also Myanmar, which is also known as Burma. Okay. Um, what's driving resettlement for those populations uh, is pretty typical again of what drives refugee resettlement around the world. Um, for children who are coming to the US from Iraq, many of them are fleeing sectarian violence uh, and sometimes religious or ethnic persecution. For children who've come to the United States from Bhutan, that's a refugee crisis that really started about 20 years ago. Mm. And the refugees coming from Bhutan are a Nepali-speaking ethnic minority. They were essentially expelled from Bhutan and were told they were no longer Bhutanese citizens. They had to move into refugee camps in Nepal, and because they had been there for so long, to the point that really the children we're seeing were born in those camps in Nepal, it didn't seem like there was anywhere else for them to go And the United States said. can't be stateless forever we'll take you in Mm -hmm. the children we see from Myanmar are from a wide variety of different ethnic minorities um, and that reflects sort of long-standing conflict between the government and Myanmar and many of those um, minority ethnic groups Mm
0: -hmm. thank you you mentioned that some of these children are born in refugee camps and some I know may be there for quite some time even if they weren't born there what is the health care and the diet like while they're in the refugee camps so what can we expect there their conditions like before they came here
1: yeah so you know the health of refugee children in many respects is is similar across populations and at the same time there are some really important differences between different populations so about half of refugees around the world are actually in cities and about half are in refugee camps Mm -hmm. in general and this is a generalization when we see children who are coming from refugee camps we're more likely to see problems like chronic or acute malnutrition reflected in stunting or low weight, failure to thrive. Um, And that's often because when families are living in camps, they have limited mobility, they often have limited um, ability to work or have limited permission to work and so they're often dependent upon food packages. And those food packages may or may not have sufficient calories or sufficient protein or sufficient micronutrients uh, for children to to grow and to thrive, especially in a setting where they might also have a lot of diarrheal and respiratory disease. Mm -hmm. In contrast, when we're seeing refugees who are coming from cities, they um, typically, but not always, have had better access to food. And we're really seeing more of the problems we're seeing in low-income children in the United States where they might be overweight or even obese, but they still might have micronutrient deficiencies and they might have had a very poor quality diet despite not having signs of you know, stunting and, and wasting and, and that type of um, calorie-based malnutrition. So the, the diet can be very different depending on where kids come from. Healthcare as a result you know, similarly is very different. Typically, in refugee camps, there are um, early childhood vaccination and preventive health programs, um, but there's not usually access to specialty care um, or to a higher level of care, uh, for, for example, for a child with special health care needs. For refugees in cities, access to health care is really variable. If a family comes from Iraq um, and they've had access to their savings, for example, while living in Amman, Jordan, where they can pay for health care out of pocket, uh, they might have done so for a child. Um, and so sometimes
0: that can vary more depending on the
1: family's resources.
0: So the concept of preventative well visit care is not something that's always foreign to them, that's something that they may have been exposed to before?
1: You know, in my experience, preventive care for refugee families really means vaccination. The idea that you would sit down with a physician every couple months or every year and have a full body undressed exam and talk about uh, some of the social determinants of health that we try to weave into um, pediatric care in the US, that might be new for them. And it's something we'll actually try to explain to people when they first get here. Great, That's good to know, that's really helpful.
0: What if any communicable diseases are screened for prior to coming to the US? And if someone were to test positive for something, would that preclude them from being able to resettle?
1: So the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, actually have a very robust overseas refugee health program. Um, It means that for most refugees coming to the United States, there's been a program of vaccination. So vaccination for U.S.-bound refugees and all refugees coming to the United States undergo a health screening um, prior to travel. Um, and if someone has something that would be an active communicable condition, they would be treated prior to travel.
0: Great. That's good to know. So, as primary care pediatricians, what health problems or health issues do we need to worry about that are maybe specific to the refugee population that we see in Philadelphia that we might not think of in U.S. born patients?
1: Mm-hmm. So the first thing I would say is that overall, refugee children are pretty healthy, and overall, refugee children have a lot in common with U.S. children. That means that dental caries are actually Mm -hmm. one of the most common problems we see amongst refugees, and so having a good relationship to your local dental providers, the ability to do fluoride varnish, to refer to a dental home, that's really important. We also see a good bit of anemia in refugee children. Some of that's nutritional, and sometimes it has to do with hemoglo- hemoglobinopathies or uh, G6PD deficiency. Again, we see that in U.S. kids. It's just as a little bit more common in the refugee population. Um, elevated blood lead, not usually highly elevated, but between the levels of five and 10. Um, we see in about one in four refugee kids so being able to provide education to families in a way that makes sense to them, being able to provide appropriate follow-up testing is really important. And you're probably gathering, I'm talking about dental caries and anemia and elevated blood lead. So a lot of this is about longitudinal care and the care you provide in a, in a medical home. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the most common condition that US pediatricians might not see as much, although it's by no means unfamiliar to them, is latent tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Um, And so the CDC recommends screening all refugee children for latent tuberculosis after arrival in the US and that complements the screening they've had overseas. Um, And in general, uh, children do tend to have latent rather than infectious disease. um, And then you need to be able to explain what it is to parents, make sure they understand the treatment options, and make sure there's a system in place so that children will complete treatment.
0: It's interesting and also reassuring to hear that a lot of the things that you're bringing up are things that I already have in my toolbox as a primary care pediatrician. They're things that I'm already trained on, they're familiar to me,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that are part of my practice, and so it's nice to know that, um, that I am capable of handling those sorts of things in my office.
1: Yeah, I think that those core pediatric primary care skills are in many respects the core skills you need in refugee healthcare so much of it is about communicating with families, communicating across a language barrier, communicating with families with different levels of health literacy, different levels of li- literacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I feel like when you work with refugee families honestly you just improve these skills that make you better you know in your general practice. Mm-hmm.
0: Are there any published screening guidelines of? Um, tests that we should do after children arrive in the U.S. um, and where would we be able Mm -hmm. to find those in our busy clinic setting?
1: Yeah, so there are definitely um, published resources. Uh, The CDC has online domestic refugee health guidelines and so that's usually sort of the foundation of any screening program. The American Academy of Pediatrics also has an Immigrant Health Screening Toolkit and that can be found online. Um, And then there is a tool called G10 which was actually developed as a travel medicine tool so it's not comprehensive but it's a really fast way to get kind of a snapshot about what the yellow book says about a specific country. So even if you're looking at the CDC guidelines and it says, you know, if the child is from an area that's endemic for malaria, do this. And you're scratching your head and saying, how do I know if this is a child from a country that's endemic for malaria? That G10 online tool can be a really helpful way to access the Yellow
0: Book quickly. That's good to know. It's something I didn't know about before. Mm Are there any mental health concerns for children who have experienced life as a refugee and how can we be sensitive to supporting those needs or recognizing those Mm -hmm. needs in the primary care setting?
1: So, we tend to see, you know, sort of two groups of refugee kids, I would say. We see a lot of kids who were born in refugee camps were born in a city in a country of first asylum. and. They've been, to a certain extent, protected from direct exposure to violence. They haven't necessarily had the traumatic experience their parents had, um, but they really had to face things like social deprivation uh, and potentially discrimination because they were from a minority group. were not citizens in the place where they're getting, where um, they where they're, where, they're um, where they've asked for asylum. So for those kids, we tend to see sort of the same kind of stresses you would expect in any other child. They might have a little bit of regression if they're a toddler when they first move to a new place. They might have some anxiety when they first start school. But they're not necessarily at heightened risk for problems like PTSD. The other group of kids we see are kids who've had direct experience with conflict and with violence. Mm-hmm. They, we've seen children who had been kidnapped by a militia group, um, children who've witnessed explosions, um, children who've had family members killed. And for those kids, there is definitely a higher risk of um, things like PTSD, um, other anxiety disorders. Um, You know, the most important thing I think for us is is to make sure that the family is doing well. Kids are really resilient. And if their parents are doing well, it's usually a good prognostic sign for them. Mm -hmm. Um, So making sure that parents or guardians are well supported I think is actually really important to pediatricians. And that's not something we can do alone. Mm -hmm. So that's where partnership with resettlement organizations or ethnic community organizations is really
0: critical. Mm -hmm. Thank you. How as um, pediatricians can we help our refugee patients access the services they need or find these community groups if they're not already plugged Mm -hmm. into them? So there are a
1: couple things that people can do. Um, In terms of direct care, one of the most important things any pediatrician can do is make sure that their office is friendly to families who don't speak English. That means, you know, can people who don't speak English actually call your after-hours number and make it through the telephone answering service? Is your front desk staff comfortable using a telephonic interpreter? Does everyone in your office know how to access language services? The next level in clinical care is if there isn't already a clinic in your area that's seeing newly arrived children Think about whether you'd like to partner with your local resettlement organization or organizations to be that clinic. It can be, you know, kids can't start school until they've had a health evaluation and been vaccinated. And so having a clinic that will work directly with the resettlement organizations to schedule those evaluations as quickly as possible And also, you know, just gain some increased familiarity with those refugee health guidelines. That can be a huge, huge help. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also ways to be involved, though, that aren't clinical. And these are also really important. You know, refugee communities are trying to figure out how things work in the U.S. So that means, you know, you're going to have teenagers at school who want to know, if I want to be a doctor or a nurse in the U.S., how would I do that? So if there's a refugee community who wants you to talk at a career day, say yes, Mm -hmm. you know, get involved. Go and meet people uh, directly in their community and learn about um, the sorts of things that they're looking for uh, for their young people. And that can be really, really rewarding. Mm -hmm. And those insights can also help you do a better job when you're seeing people back in the clinic.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about the Refugee Health Program at CHOP in terms of what it can offer? the primary care community and who gets referred there, and then what we might see from you on the primary care side for a patient who's already been seen, um, what would be coming into my in-basket? Yeah.
1: (laughs) So the CHOP Refugee Health Program is based out of the CareBot's office, which is the CHOP office at 48th and Market. We're a clinic within a clinic, so we're, we're located within that primary care site. We partner with the resettlement organizations in order to provide that you know, expedited access to a comprehensive health evaluation for a newly arrived child. We follow the CDC's refugee health screening guidelines. We try to orient families to the U.S. health system, um, and we try to help them integrate into a medical home. So when we see a family at clinic, um, we usually start off with a laboratory screening visit where we'll do our blood work that we need to do to screen for things like hepatitis and TB and anemia and elevated blood lead. We'll then meet the family in clinic. We'll review their results. We'll explain how to access care in the US, including after hours and 911. If there's a teenager in the family, we try to explain both to the teen and to the parents that we do adolescent health care, certainly in the United States, and we try to you know, talk about their expectations and what our norms are in a way that's non-threatening. Um, and we typically will then see families back for a follow-up visit after that first visit to see if they've been able to, for example, see a dentist in the interim, mm-hmm. to track weight, uh, and to wrap up any part of the evaluation that we couldn't do at the first visit that might include things like further mental health screening, adolescent health screening, and developmental assessments, because those can be hard to do when a family has first met you Mm -hmm. um, and they're a little bit overwhelmed still by just having arrived in the United States. Typically, families will who stay within CHOP um, will after that point, if they don't have any health problems that really need intensive management, can move into a regular primary care panel. If they were to move into a primary care panel outside of the CHOP system, um, we prepare a letter for families that details any of the screening testing we've done, as well as any presumptive treatment we might have given them, like presumptive treatment for intestinal parasites. Um, and we hope that they'll give that to their next provider. Mm-hmm.
0: Definitely. Thank you so much for bringing a lot of light to this topic for me and for the listeners. Uh, to sum up, what's been the most rewarding part of your work with the refugee community?
1: I think, as a pediatrician, you know, one in four U.S. children has at least one immigrant parent. And in Philadelphia, Latino children and Asian children, 30 to 40 percent, I think, have a parent who might um, have limited English proficiency, so refugee health is just also such a great way to improve your health communication skills, Mm -hmm. you know, your skills for working with someone who has limited English proficiency, um, and for families with limited health literacy. Um, And I think it's also, it's just nice to feel like, you know, you're doing your part. We have, unfortunately, there's a global refugee crisis and there's obviously you know millions of children overseas that need a lot of help but even if you're here in Philadelphia you can
0: still contribute mm-hmm. right so doing a little bit of global health on the local scale it's global health
1: on the local scale that's exactly right that's great
0: thank you so much for the work that you do thank you for teaching us about how we can also be involved with the refugee community and taking care of refugee patients in our practice to the best of our abilities in the primary care setting and knowing where we can look for resources and help when we need it. So thank you so much for bringing all that to, to us today. I'm happy to do so, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.